We travelled to Te Tauihu to meet Nuku 43, Karenza Johnston. She is the CEO of Wakatsu Incorporation, which has about 4,000 owners who descend from whānau and hapū of Wakatsu, Motueka and Mohuarohe. Karenza has worked as a solicitor in the private sector, a barrister and as a legal academic where she specialised in Māori legal development, public law, land law and international law. She was part of the Nelson Tents Reserves and Occupation Reserves case against the New Zealand government, which was won in the Supreme Court. Today, her role has a focus on leading her whānau through the sustainable use of their land and resources, including a focus in areas of food sovereignty, innovation and Indigenous science. In this episode, we talk about that Supreme Court case and the legacy of Wakatsu, about harnessing the strengths of different iwi and hapu, and her mahi with Ngā Pai o Te Maramatanga, the Māori Centre of Research Excellence. Whakarongo mai. Kia ora, I'm Kiane. Nuku is a movement. We're empowering Indigenous wahine to be agents of change, cultivating opportunities to shape the world we want. Through this series, we're meeting 100 kick-ass Indigenous wahine doing things differently. They show us how the world can be shaped by our unique Indigenous voice. It's all about who we are and not who we've been told to be. Nuku, mahine, mohine, kiahine. Tēnā koe, Karenza Johnston. How are you? Kei te pai. Tēnā koe. <laughs> Thank you for welcoming us to your beautiful rohe, or part of your beautiful rohe here in Te Tauihu. Um, I have had a wonderful experience being here so far, um, and often we say welcome to the Nuku Whare, but I'm very excited that we're in your Whare, because it's nice to get out of the North Island um, and travel around and actually see other parts of of our beautiful uh, country. Um, we are here to korero with you today about, mainly about your role with Wakatsu, um, but I really want to know more about who you are and what led you into this space. So would you mind sharing with us a little bit about your whakapapa and what your upbringing was like? Mm, well, kia ora. Uh, ko au te uri o Ngāti Tama ki te tauihu, ki konei. Uh, ko Ngāruihine, uh, ko Ngāti Whawhākia uh, ki Tainui, uh, Oku iwi hoki, um, ko Karenza Johnston takuingoa. So, uh, ngā mihi mai o hakia kia koe. Um, so, it's really lovely to be with you today and um, yep, to have you here in this beautiful part of the world. Uh, so, um, I guess uh, just a, a, a little bit about me. I didn't grow up here in the South Island. I grew up in the Bay of Plenty. Uh, I was brought up by my uh, mum and my grandmother. Mm. Uh, so it was a very um, wahine-focused um, family or whānau, although I did have a little brother um, who, uh, we, who obviously I grew up with. And um, it wasn't until qu- quite a bit later in life that uh, I reconnected with my whānau here in the top of the south. So... Um, you know, I grew up, my mum is um, Scottish, my grandmother's Scottish, so it's through my dad that I whakapapa to, uh, to Tainui, Taranaki and then Te Tauihu. Um, and uh, a little bit, you know, we were talking earlier, a little a sort of quite similar to you really. My, my dad and mum broke up when I was about three mm. and my dad moved to Canada. Wow. So... <laughs> um, so I grew up really those early years without knowing v- very much at all about the you know the Māori side of my family, um, but I was really lucky um, in the sense that my grandmother um, was one of those women who, uh, you know, she worked really hard. Um, she was really smart, but I, I think uh, like a lot of woman in particular who came from working class families, she didn't have the opportunities that we have today. So she left school when she was 13. She started working sort of straight away, really. Um, But all through my upbringing, she read a lot of history. 
she understood a lot about what had happened in our country. And so right from a really, you know, from a really little girl, she would talk to me about being Māori and how how valuable it was. And in particular, she would talk about my whakapapa to Taranaki and say, you know, those Taranaki people, they fought, they fought, you know, they fought for their land. And so from a very early age, she instilled in me the, a real pride around being Māori, which, which is probably quite, un, I don't know if that's unusual, but, you know, I, al- I always grew up being really proud of it. Um, but it wasn't until I went to university um, at Wellington and Victoria, Victoria University that I really reconnected with my the, the Māori side of my whānau. Um, and that was through some really instrumental cousins um, and, and other people that I met in Wellington um, who then essentially took me back to Taranaki. And that was the beginning of my um, education, I suppose, in terms of you know um, my taha Māori side, my whakapapa, and really bringing all of that, you know, mm. bringing that out in a way that it had, I hadn't been able to you know, really before before I started um, living in Wellington. Mm. Wow. Mm. It's um, thinking about your, your mum and your kuya, um, your pakea kuya yeah. at that time, and just the energy that she had put in to ensure that you knew that um, is very special. Did she, did she go as far as... Um, did she learn any te reo Māori or teach you any te reo Māori or was it mainly the, the history side of things? Um, no, she <laughs> she did a little bit. And, and what, you know, I think uh, we grew up uh, before my grandfather died, which was when I was seven, uh, we, had a, we were uh, embedded in the Scottish community. Mm. So a really strong um, network of Scottish families you know, where I grew up, first of all in Taupo and then in um, in Rotorua. Uh, so the, the cultural side of that meant there was always lots of singing, there was lots of kai, you know, we sort of a bit like, you know, uh, mm. Māori, we, everything revolved around um, hospitality, um, being together, eating, drinking, you know, laughing, lots and lots of laughter. And as part of that, she was really interested in, um, yeah, in te reo as it was then, but particularly the music. So she, you know, I was in this sort of unfortunate situation if they would make me put on <laughs> concerts, <laughs> so, you know, singing and sort of mini concert um, parties for them um, as kind of entertainment, I suppose. But also, again, I think it was... You know, she was conscious of the lack of Māori role models that I had as a young mm-hmm. child, and and I think there was a deliberate um, attempt to continuously emphasise that part of my whakapapa that you know, mum and my grandmother knew they couldn't they couldn't give me that in totality, but so they gave me what they could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I got to uh, 60, about 16 and um, I decided, you know, I was really clear I wanted to go to university and there, there was no money to get me to university. And so what my mum and my grandmother did was they they said, right, we're going to go to Taranaki and we're going to talk to your your iwi people, the, the entities. And at that stage, this is pre-settlement, so there, there actually weren't really entities. It was the... Um, the Taranaki Māori Trust Board at that time, and they said, do you want to come? And as sort of a typical 16-year-old, I was like, I'm not, no, I don't want to do that. I can't, <laughs> no, no, that's a terrible idea. And so mum and my grandmother got in the car and they left me with friends for the weekend and they went They went to the, they turned up on the doorstep of the Taranaki Tr- Māori Trust Board wow. in Hawera with, you know, all my um, information and who my dad is. And they said, we're here and we need help. We need to help our girl get to university. Um, and in the way that things, you know, we work as Māori, um, the, the secretary got on the phone and, you know, within about an hour, my auntie came up from Manaya, sort of half an hour away, and met with mum and my grandmother and was like, yep, we know who you are. And then that, that really opened the door for me. Uh, in terms of absolutely financial support to get to get to university, but also the 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 real taonga, the the in mm. to that whānau. and for, it's for that reason I've always been 
um, really, I really strongly believe that those sorts of opportunities are ways that you can reconnect families who who are lost, and you should you can never judge what why they might mm. be disconnected from their from their whenua, from their fano and hapu and iwi, but you've got to give families and individuals a, a way in. And, tr- and trust that when they come, they c- they're coming with, you know, with all of their aroha and, their, and in good faith. And then from there, you can, re- you can build a real connection, I think. And I think how, it makes me think how brave they must have been to do that. Because it's not easy. It's not even easy for someone who does, um, who who knows of their whakapapa to mm. that place, who may even have connections to a place to go in and say, hey, this is my situation and I need to reconnect and I need some help. And to have two wahine who were not Māori mm. to go into a space that was very Māori um, of someone who was no longer part of their life in, in the sense of your dad, um, but on your behalf was is very brave. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is, and at the time I didn't really, I didn't understand it at all or appreciate it. It wasn't until later when I understood how how mm. how unfriendly those environments can be yeah, at times mm. for all of us that I understood that, yeah. You know, we talk a lot about um, what we learn as Indigenous wahine, but as I hear you talking of the story of these two women... I want to ask, what did these two wahine teach you about being a woman? The, the thing I remember most and I try, um, you know, try and uh, remember every day is they taught me about our capacity, a woman's capacity to, la- to laugh and love so what I remember from my childhood mainly was in this all very all female environment, is a, just lots of laughing. You know, we, it always seemed to me that we were laughing about something, um, and I think that that, that for me, um, the, that's a really important lesson to look for the um, yeah the humour and the and the lightness where we can, particularly when we have very you know, we, we're carrying. Uh, heavy roles or mm. a lot of mahi and responsibility. So that, but but also, um, you know, hard work. Both my mum and my grandmother just that that they instilled in me uh, a really strong work ethic. So my grandmother, in particular, if she, you know, d- didn't matter how sick she was, she got up, she went to work every day. Now, that, that's not necessarily a good a good thing. Mm. Um, you know, as I've learned, but but it, it has made me really believe in the value of hard work. And if you work hard, um, you, you know, you can achieve the things that you want to achieve. And that there's kind of no magic in it. It's mm. just work. Um, so those those are probably the two the two things. Yeah. You're currently the CEO of Wakatsu Incorporation here in Titawihu. Um and I'm trying to. I want to talk to you about what, how you got to this role, but I'm most interested, I think, in how you went from connecting to your whakapapa in Taranaki to connecting to your whakapapa here, and then what led you, what, what kind of mahi did you do that sort of directed you into this space? Um, so I, mean, I went to uh, Victoria and, you know, I'd wanted, I wanted to be a, a, an international human rights lawyer mm. working I had this vision of myself I was going to be in the United Nations and I wanted to um, you know I was, I was always really interested in human rights women's rights indigenous people's rights that grew really became a very strong focus you know throughout my university degree and I always thought that was going to be in the in the you know overseas internationally um, and also, I was very focused on the law. So, f- I, I, um, yeah, I really loved university. I just, I felt so um, like the luxury of being in a room where you could just think and mm. talk and and learn all day. I always felt that that was a real luxury, actually, a, a real 
privilege. Um, and I be- again, I believe really strongly that that anyone should have the ability to do that if that's what they want to do. And it should be in in all different areas. It's not limited to where, you know where you might think you can get a job or how you can make the most money or whatever. It's just this real luxury of learning. So um, that was what I was always going to do. And I, I left law school. Um, I got a, my first job was um, a judge's clerk at the Court of Appeal. Uh, and at that time, there were only, they, they took four people a year. So they had four judges clerks and you worked collectively for all of the, the appeal court judges. And again, that was really a, a, such an amazing experience. So working on, you know, really important cases, um, interesting cases. Uh, and then it, I think I was following a pr- pretty traditional legal career. Mm. Uh went overseas, um, worked as a lawyer there. And then I, I I sort of lost my sense of purpose. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't figure out why I was doing all this legal work and, and who was going to benefit from it. You know, what, what was really my purpose? Mm. So I thought I need to have a break. So I had a, I came back and I, I, this doesn't sound like a break, but I, <laughs> break by um, I did a masters. I didn't a I masters took a break by doing more study. <laughs> so I'll go back. I'll do a heavy break. So I I did a masters in international law um, to have a break and just have a think about you know where mm. I was going because I could see I was following this traditional quite commercial um, uh, progression, uh, and it was then really that. Um, uh, one of my cousins from uh, Wakatu, Rōpata, kind of found me and he, he he rang me up. But I was living in Auckland at the time. I was, by that time, I was a lecturer at the law school at, um, at Auckland University and finishing my master's degree. Uh, and I'd established a legal practice. So I'd sort of done a few things and in your break and then in the break <laughs> Jeez, I was I'd trying to, to figure out to think what you do when you're not on a break genuinely <laughs> having a break trying to figure out. and then I had Daisy who's my little girl so I'd had Daisy and she was about a year old and I decided actually that I I wanted to go and do full-time te reo study and I knew that we had this uh Papa connection to Wakatu Incorporation. I knew I knew we'd land here and my aunties had talked about mm. uh our Papa here but I'd never been to Nelson. Oh, I'd been once, but never sort of been properly. And um, so I rang, uh, I contacted Wakatu and I said, this is kind of embarrassing. I said, I'd, I'd like to go and do a te reo program. I'd like to apply for a scholarship because I was, you know, I said, but I, I actually work. So I don't, if there are other people who need the money more than me, please give them the money. But if you've got plenty of money, then oh, please could I have some? Because and the, so Rōpata, my cousin, got my CV and he rang me about a week later. He said, "We're not going to give you a scholarship." Like, no. He said, "But could you come? Would you consider uh, coming on to the Wakatu board as um, an associate director?" So um, our associate director scheme is this really cool. St- scheme that we have where we grow young directors onto the board and at that stage I must have been about sort of early 30s and I said I don't even I don't you know I'm not really sure what that is and I'm not sure I've got the time and he said just please come I think you'd Mm. really enjoy it and get to learn a lot Uh, and so that was the beginning I flew down probably about a month later um, and um, that first meeting with the board, I remember I stood up on day one to give my mihi mihi and I gave this lovely, what I thought was this amazing mihi and, uh, you know, connecting me to Taranaki and all my places in Waikato. And one of our komatua stood up and he said, that's, that's lovely, dear. He said, but you need to you need to tell us your whakapapa to hear. And he did it in a really gentle, it was actually a really mm. gentle way, although inside I was pure. <laughs> oh, oh. But it was a challenge. It was a cha- challenge mm. to say, well, 
that's your that is your whakapapa there, but you're here now, so you need to learn, you know, what are your awa here, what are your maunga here, who are your fat people here? And so that was the beginning. That was sort of there, yeah, that was the beginning of the reconnection here. Wow. Mm. The um Wakatu Incorporation is unique in a sense, and I don't want to get this wrong, so I'm I'm not going to say what I think I'm going to say, which is telling you what it is, because <laughs> I'm not going to tell the CEO what my interpretation of your company is. But um, I I believe it's quite unique in the sense that it brings together a number of different hapu. Uh, its shareholders are descendants of some very amazing tupuna, and you are not a post-settlement entity. And so the, the putia that you had to start the mahi that you have done and the different arms that Wakatu has, has come from a, a place of homegrownness in a sense. Can you tell us about Wakatu? What is it? What is it made up of? What does this ropu do? Why is it so important now in your life that you can fuck up up to these awa and maunga here in Te Tauihu? Mm. <laughs> um, I mean, the, you know, at its heart, uh, Wakatu is, you know, the face of the whānau and hapu of our place. Right? So it's it's um, can sometimes get confusing, I think, in our landscape at the moment because we have all these legal structures and entities mm. um, and certainly Wakatu is a legal entity, um, but sitting behind that structure is the whānau and the hapu of Nelson, um, Motueka and Mohua, Taz, uh, Golden Bay. And so what happened in the um, early 70s, essentially all our aunties and uncles, our grandparents, got together uh, and made the decision to form an incorporation to, to consolidate all of our land, all of our assets into you know one pot, if you like, um, because they knew that doing that would hopefully have a really good, not just a commercial outcome, but a cultural and so- social one as well. Mm. So rather than having a situation where all the families owned separate pieces of land, you know, let's bring the lands together and manage them as one estate. Um, you know, the really, I think, um, one of our greatest strengths is that you know, the descendants of Wakatu today, we all descend just from 300 individuals. So the owners, the, the Māori customary owners were identified by the Native Land Court in the 1890s. That's a list of 300 names. And when you come to our um, building, which you will come, <laughs> um, all of those names are, are, are up on the wall so that we rem- every time we walk in, we're reminded of wow. our tūpuna, we talk to them, you know, all the time. We have them kind of on our shoulder, um, keeping an eye on us. Um, so we're actually, you know, the, the, those names are all brothers and sisters, mum and dad, husband and wife. And so very close relationships that repeat, you know, obviously to the present day. So you were with my cousin this morning with Rachel Um you know, the the most of my um, of our senior leadership team is made up of you know Farno. Um, so um, you know that's something I'm really I'm really proud of. So we're certainly not a we're not a creation of the treaty settlement process. We've always owned our land mm. and water. Um, you know, before 1840, we owned it according to Māori customary law. From 1840, the the nature of that legal relationship or title changed, but our our relationship to the Finua has never changed. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And so, I know that Wakatu has uh, a food and beverage arm because we talked about that with Rachel. What else does Wakatu do? So you've been up at the. Tohu Winery today in the Awatere Valley, which we bought um, uh, 2012. Um, so that's part of Kono, which is our food and beverage, ex- mainly export food and beverage business. Um, and so Kono is um, the wine, you know, the wine business, 
horticulture, so hops, apples, kiwi fruit, mm. um, pears, seafood, annies. Um, and then as well as that, you know, I think of waka too, it's kind of got, um, it's got th- sort of four parts to it or four po. There's kono, uh, then we have our whenua or property part. So that's, we do lots of um, residential developments, commercial developments. Uh, and then we have um, what we call manaki, which I, th- I think of uh, as the heart of our organisation. So that's all of our capability building programs for whānau. So mm-hmm. all sorts of wānanga and um, we've got a really exciting program about to start, which is around Indigenous crops. Wow. Um, you know, building resilience in the whānau um, so that we can feed ourselves go, you know, into the future. Mm. Um, that came out of the realisation that we've built this business through Cornwall, which is mainly export focused. So we're feeding the world, mm. you know, and we're doing that really well and we need to feed our whānau. Feed ourselves. And we also need to um, give our whānau the tools to be able to feed themselves from their whenua and their white, their water. So that I'm that's a that's really exciting. I'm really excited about that this work that's coming. So that's Manaki. And then there's another part which is quite new, which we call O Order, uh, which is around innovation, uh, nutrition, looking for new ingredients and in food. And what what that team is doing at the moment They've, they've nearly finished, they've, they've been involved in an Indigenous organisms project, so mapping all of our Indigenous organisms across Te Tauihu and working out, you know, how can these help us in terms of our health and wellbeing and so on. So that's also really, really cool work. Wow. It's, it's huge, Mahi. It's fascinating and it's really exciting and I think in Aotearoa we're so used to Māori or iwi business succeeding because of a post-settlement agreement. Um, and I guess my experience is that I see a lot of um, investment in property, I see a lot of investment in uh, like malls, <laughs> thinking about my own iwi now, <laughs> malls and whenua. Um, but you're working in a space of kai, food sovereignty, innovation, um, science, and it's really, really exciting stuff. How do you, how, where do these ideas come from? And how do you continue to feed them so that you're leading in that space? Because there are other organisations around the country that also lead in a food space or in a science space. But what you're doing is unique because it comes from a very Indigenous perspective. How is it that you keep on top of your game? (laughs) You should have seen her facial at me just then. (laughs) I mean, I think... um, we had a really lovely corridor from um, one of our Fanonga, Che Wilson, um, a while ago now. About a year ago, he came down. And he led this session with us, with with the management team and with the board, kind of. And what he was talking about was was the different characteristics that different iwi have. Like, what is it they bring? You know, for some it's it's kai, for some it's um, it's te reo, for kapahaka. Like, if, you know, we all have our each iwi has characteristics and we mm. can trace that right back and that's why we traded and he was talking about it in that context. It was really interesting. And I think, you know, when um, when the New Zealand company was establishing the Nelson Settlement, our whānau in Motueka were already building houses on spec in preparation for the settlers coming, right? They were, that's how excited they were. <laughs> I was like, you know, around the new technology, the opportunities for growth. And I think one of our characteristics as a whānau and a hapu is, um, is of an innovative mindset. Mm. And so we, we, around the board table in particular, there's sort of no, sh- no shortage of ideas. 
you know, and some of them are really you know, quite, <laughs> quite, um, you know, uh, quite out there and and really challenging. Um, so I think I think what it comes down to is just the the, you know, always comes down to the people and the leadership and the ability of people to to take those ideas and then turn them into something. Mm. I think. Mm. Um, speaking of leadership, it's it's not easy getting five people to agree on something. Um, it's definitely not easy to get Uri of 300 Tupuna to agree on a pathway. How do you navigate some of the politics that happen in Te Ao Māori, which are different to the politics that we see out in the big wide world, um, but those those politics that happen amongst whānau around how or, or what different people believe should be focused on, um, and and just those, the, yeah. How do you navigate that space? Because it's it's not easy when you're dealing with Fano, and it's not easy when there are differing opinions or different preferences as to which pathway should be taken. What's what's <laughs> what's your what's your way of doing it? Mm. Um, I th- I th- part of the answer I th- I think. Is you've you've got to have real clarity on values and and again pur- purpose and 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 be really explicit in terms of talking about those values all the time and then the the the, the very long term purpose and that doesn't mean that everyone's going to agree and certainly they they we don't as a whānau, and I think that's a that's a healthy thing actually you want to have debate and and really stress test the, the the strategies that any entity like ours that's responsible for taonga is enacting. And I, I actually think this is a question, you know, all, all Māori entities should be considering, um, it, you know, ha, how do you continue to have relevance to whānau and how do you make sure that you are connected with whānau and, and you know, across all the different kinds of whānau because we're so diverse mm. um, and that that's the other thing I think sometimes um, the you know as the as the ahika you we can forget that there are so many diverse realities not just in Aotearoa but you know, all over the world and that as the, as the the ones at home we're so incredibly privileged to be able to be on our marae access our whenua it, you know, eat the fruit from our orchards and so on in ways that many of our whānau never can. So it's mm. it's being, you know, mindful of all of that and then trying to design programs that will keep bringing whānau in. Um, and and that, is, that, that is really challenging, but I think um, at the heart of what, well, what we're trying to do as Wakatu and I, I I think many other Māori entities are in this same space. At the heart, of it's about the survival of our whānau hapu iwi mm. as Indigenous communities. That's that's actually the goal. It's not about uh, how much wine we sell or you know, how much <laughs> money we made last yep. year. It's always that 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 mm. goal of decolonisation. Um, Vitalization of our language, our culture, our tikanga, you know, all our, what it means to be Māori. Mm. Mm. Um, I actually don't know a lot about this next part, which is why I'm going to ask you about it, because <laughs> I'm just really interested. Um, there, there was some litigation against the Crown, and Rachel was actually really proud of um, Wakatu in the Supreme Court case and what had happened around that, but didn't go into detail of it. And so we sort of started having the beginning stages of this conversation and I wanted to continue it on. I thought, actually, no, that's a Karenza corridor. Mm. Can you tell me about that? What happened? Uh, so we won a case in the Supreme Court in 2017. Um, that case really started in 1841, but in mm-hmm. terms of m- modern times, started in about 1986 when um, our kaumatua, uh, Uncle Rory Stafford and Hohepa Solomon uh, first 
began to talk about the what what becomes the case. Um, it's a really groundbreaking decision, not 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 just here, but you know around the world. Because what we did with that case was we we moved it out of the the treaty settlement uh, or Waitangi tribunal process, mm. um, and we t- we took the take to the courts, and we constructed um, a really traditional legal argument, but based on the premise that. Let, let's actually put aside that we're talking about the Crown and Māori. Let's just see if we can apply the law to the Crown. Right, so what does it look like if you actually take just just the law that applies to every single other person, or in this case, um, a trustee of land, and apply it? And so we, we went right back and we looked at, you know, thousand-year-old um, cases from the King's Court in England and, you know, a whole quite novel law that's always been there but it just has never been applied to the crown properly because mm. in our legal system our courts have been um too quick to say oh that's all political or you know oh, the crown's a bit different they don't they don't have the same obligations as everyone else and we said no no just apply the same law to them and to us and let's see where we get to and when we started um our lawyers said to us yeah you're that's never been done before. It's not possible. Um, so we got, we got new lawyers. <laughs> okay, we're not, not on the same page yeah, as us. Uh, so we, we we actually went through a few uh, lawyers who kept saying, "We you know we just don't think you've got a case here. You know this is you should you, this is not what possible." What was the tucky? What was the main tucky? So the tucky was um, when when the New Zealand company. Um, established Nelson as a town, which was the second town after Wellington. Um, they essentially agreed with our uh, with our tūpuna that they could put the town there, but subject to, to two really important conditions. The one, the first was that uh, all of our papakainga lands, our wahi tapu, our cultivation lands would be protected, which mm-hmm. makes sense. So this is our home, you know, you can't have these parts. Um, and then the second was that one-tenth of what becomes Nelson, one-tenth of that land area would be reserved for us, for the families forever. So one-tenth equals about 15,000 acres of land. They actually did reserve about 2,000 acres. They, they just <laughs> just left off. They just, they just forgot how to do maths. Yeah. Like many of their... Descendants following, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the genesis, um, the knuckle of the Wakatu estate is that original two thousand um, mm. acres, and it's a miracle actually that that was even reserved. Um, so right from the beginning, so from eighteen forty five, the other miracle was the Crown actually issued a, a legal Crown grant saying that. So it wasn't like it was, we just dreamt it up, had a conversation. There was a a legal uh, agreement made at the time. And so right from the start, as soon as our families became aware that 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 arrangement was not being met, we started to advocate from day one, you know, parliament, petitions, all sorts of things. Um, And this just kind of gathered like a snowball, just, you know, gathered steam. Um... And when I came onto the board as an as a associate director, uh, it was a big theme. So how are we going to resolve this? There must be a way through. What there must be a way through. And our our um, uh, komato just wouldn't take no for an answer. Mm. Were, no, no, we have to resolve this. Um, and so it's from that's that's when we got into the legal discussion and then ended up in court. But knowing you know the advice from the lawyers was, you, we will probably lose in the High Court, we will probably lose in the Court of Appeal, we have a chance in the Supreme Court. And, and in fact, that's exactly what happened. And the the Wakatū board were really explicit with the whānau about that because they had to fund it. Um, and it's, I'm, it's something I'm still incredibly proud of, um, the, the courage it takes, actually, to see that through because that took... Uh, Twelve years to get to the Supreme wow. Court, yeah, and we're still we're still 
we still haven't got to the end yet. So it just takes a lot of resolve as leaders around a, uh, you know, governing an organisation to be able to say, okay, we we have to keep going. Mm. Yeah. And I think the courage and the faith it takes to continue to believe in the process and the outcome because when you're going through such a long drawn out process like that and you have had and you know while people are expecting failures um when those failures come through like losing in a in the high court or losing an appeal um they can knock they can knock people back quite away and so having the having the faith just holding on to that to get to the end um it's really difficult to have sometimes really difficult there were some um i think this is when our beauty of and our indigenous wisdom really comes to the fore because there were some beautiful moments in the court even when we were losing and one in particular when um when our chairman Paul Morgan gave evidence and he was giving traditional evidence and it was two days on the stand being cross-examined by the Crown lawyers and the we had our we had a really tiny team of, of four of us four four in the legal team and then the Crown you'd look over and there was just this you know it was like a a machine, you know, <laughs> yeah. and just running in and all their juniors and it was just overwhelming. I try not to look at them. And um, on the, this particular two days when Paul was giving his evidence and that's a really, giving being cross-examined and having to, most people are cross-examined for a few hours, but two days is, mm-hmm. is extreme. And I was sitting at the front um, but all like that, those two days, all I could feel the whole time were our tupuna. Like it was like they were just cra- packed and all around him and all around us. And that made, and I thought, we, we, it's okay, you mm. know. So those sorts of um, that tap, being able to tap into that wisdom, I think, well, that that part of our world really helped, you know, and when when things were really tough. Mm. Mm. Um, you, as well as your mahi, uh, as a CEO, actually, before I move on to this question, I'll wrap up, I'm going to wrap up this corridor around your mahi with waka too, in the sense that I want to ask, what, what's one of the challenges that you have faced being a CEO, in particular, being an Indigenous wahine in a position of such leadership? I, th- I think within uh, within the whānau of Wakatu and my the day to day mahi and moving about in our community, I think I've been actually incredibly privileged in that environment because um, it's a safe it's actually a safe environment and because I work with my whānau, there's a lot of love and again a lot of laughter and it and it feels really good um the for the most part <laughs> um the the hard the challenge is it has comes at times with engaging with other you know with others with the other the externals whether that's officials or um, council people or other p- people in our industry and I think uh, what I've observed uh it's not unique to being a... I don't think this is about being a CEO. I think this is about being a Māori woman mm. and possibly even Māori, is that non-Māori sometimes think we are very one-dimensional. They fa- they can't see the diversity. They can't see the expertise beyond, well, you're a Māori woman. That means you do X. So you, you might know something about mātauranga or you're here to do the karanga or you know, whatever. And so it's coming up against those stereotypes and those expectations. So they, they don't, some people can have trouble seeing us for the for the expertise we have, which might be, compl- you know, completely outside anything to do with te ao Māori, um, because they come with a particular mindset about who we are, whether that's as an organisation or as individuals. Mm. 
to, to flip that around and make sure that we don't end on a negative, but <laughs> in the in this corridor uh, about this particular part of your life, I might clarify. Um, what's one of your greatest achievements so far in your? Because you've only you've been in this role for four years now, and. Um, I don't know how much longer you want to stay there, but I'm, I'm assuming there's quite a little bit more that you want to do and achieve. But what's one of the one of your greatest achievements to date in this space? So, so the Fano winning the Supreme Court case in 2017 that was huge. That was a huge year, and and as I said, we've still got there's still a lot of mahi to bring that to fruition, which we're working through now. That has been huge. Um, but actually, if, if you know, if I just reflect on the mahi that we have been doing in the last um, last few years, uh, it, there's no r- sort of big big bang uh, thing. It's more um, every day. I feel like as a whānau and a hapu, we're getting stronger and more 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 whānau are engaging and particularly when, when I see the rangatahi, you know, some of those, some of our rangatahi are um, amazing in the way they think, um, just what they bring, you know, and that just, it just makes me feel really happy um, and really positive about the future, notwithstanding all the work that we have to do, you know, so sort of not taking the foot off the pedal in terms of what there's so much we need to do, but um, I feel like we're in a really good space. So I, that's what I'm, I'm, yeah, really proud of that. Mm. Mm. Um, you're also involved in Ngapai o Te Maramatanga. So outside of the mahi that you do for your mahi, um, you're part of the Māori Centre of Research Excellence. What what is it about that space that excites you? Well, um, so Ngāpai has, is now 18 years old, so there's a whakapapa to the, the work, you know, the legacy of Ngāpai. Um, you know, the what excites me, I guess, about that is it's Ngāpai is a... So it is a centre of research excellence. It, it you know gets a, it gets funding to f- to fund all these different programs, but it's it's really an ecosystem again of these am- amazing Maori researchers and academics and community you know people who are embedded deeply in their own communities. But again, just doing you know everything from data sovereignty to you know. Um, Resilience and climate change, to just just it, amazing. So for me, it's just being in the space with people, those thinkers, which is so so amazing. But finding solutions, what they're all engaged in. The, the unique thing I think about Maori researchers who are or scholars who are who are driven by a kaupapa Maori approach mm. is that that they might be doing. You know, very varied research, but they're driven. That the end goal is the same, which is transformation of our of our of our communities. So, um, that again, for me, that's been a real privilege to be part of. Um, and then I hope that that being part of that will benefit the Fano and the Hapu of Wakatu as well. Through you know, just through that sort of. Osmosis, hopefully. <laughs> mm. Do you think? Do you think the Waka Two model is something that um, other other iwi, other hapu around the country can? I wouldn't say mimic or mirror, um, but learn from to think beyond. <clears throat> actually, let me rephrase this because I want to say to think beyond treaty settlements because actually not everyone thinks. Treaty settlements, but um, just just with you adding that, uh, do you think that the Wakatu model is something that more iwi or hapu um, could be thinking about, as opposed to maybe some of the more traditional ways that um, our iwi have been established over the last you know however many decades, um, and the ways that we all know and have got used to. And I think, especially for us in Tāmaki, or for me, I can speak on behalf of myself because then I don't have to say I'm speaking on anyone else's opinion. Um, it's a refreshing model. It's different. 
and it's creating some really awesome change while empowering its uri, its whānau. And, yeah, I'm just keen to know what, what you think about it being held as a model of example that others might follow. I think it goes back, you know, partly to what... Um, what I said earlier about Che and the kind, the, what, what he was talking about mm-hmm. in terms of what are the particular strengths that different iwi and hapu have, and ha- and do they appreciate those strengths and those particular characteristics, um, whatever they might be. Uh, so I I think it can be it, there are you can look. It's always good to look outwards and see, well, what are, you know, not just here in Aotearoa, but what are other Indigenous nations doing or, mm. you know, what can we learn from them? And we, we went to, um, as trying to do that ourselves, we went to uh, Peru last year and spent a um, couple of weeks with a, a community there learning about their response to climate change through um, how they're managing their crops, which was Amazing, and we've we've brought back certain parts of that, but we can't just we you know we have to adapt that and then wānanga about that in terms of well, well what does this mean for us and our values? So, so I guess that's a yes and no sort of a question uh, answer, um, and we're very happy. We're all, we're always open to sharing and talking and learning because we learn as much from others when they when we visit them or they visit us as hopefully we can share with them. Mm. Yeah. I ask these questions um, on behalf of, of people who might be listening who um, who maybe don't necessarily align to the model that the government has created in the sense that uh, the Crown want to talk to iwi that are formed in a particular way, that follow a particular rule book, um, that... Uh, the, even just the model of having iwi representation and when I hear you talk about hapu and hapu representation and, and there are many of us out there who um, are learning about these things and are wanting to be able to do more for our people and wanting to help shape what these um, spaces might look like and help shape what the future of representation might look like and help shape either new systems or um, legal entities, but do it in a, in a different way because uh, for lots of people, the way that it is isn't working and that's not to dismiss um, those who have worked so hard in the spaces that they're in. But even those who have gone through treaty settlement process will say that system is so broken and even though we've come out the other end, we still don't think it's a great system. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, my, I guess my partai is, is um, or my partai that I just had is really for those who, I know there are many who listen to Nuku who think about how they can get more involved in governance or in helping to make some of those decisions with their whānau, their hapu, their marae, and where might they be able to see some alternatives to what they are probably more familiar with. And I think travelling, I mean, (laughs) at the moment nobody can travel anywhere. (laughs) It's quite a luxury. (laughs) Um, But I think the ability to learn off other Indigenous cultures is also just as important. And as much as we learn off other Indigenous um, groups around their... Uh, activist protest action to protect their whenua, protect their moana, um, and I'm thinking more along the lines of Mauna Kea and Standing Rock um, and the Wet'suwet'en and our Aboriginal brothers and sisters. While those things are, are a bit more visible to us because they're often on social media and they're things that we'll engage with on a, on a daily basis, um, I also think it's just as important as you've said to learn about how they're doing innovation and research and science and food sovereignty and um, what governance looks like for them. And it's, it's just an interesting, um, it's really interesting corridor. <laughs> well, the, the, what I think what's really the interesting kind of question or challenge that's implicit in what, what, you, what you just said, I th- which I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this, is um, 
especially in the post-settlement era, that the iwi entity is not the iwi. Mm. The the wakatu is not the hapu. Mm. Right? So, so, but but what happens to the whānau hapu iwi when you have a proliferation of entities, whether it's the iwi entity, whether it's an entity like ours, um, that essentially... Um, are in the position where they have the resources and the capability to to drive decision make you know to drive decisions and and so on and so on. So it, it's actually it's a quite a it's quite a complex question <laughs> because you start to think we, we all know as Māori that mm. our the heart is the the fano the hapu the fano and the hapu are the building blocks of the iwi. None, none of the none of the three exist independently, and yet. I, we have this situation emerging where the, where the entities are essentially, I think, uh, fulfilling those roles. And so w- where does that, what happens with the, the whānau hapu iwi? And I think that's, that's a question that we're going to have to really confront and work through. Um, but I, I partly think um, the answer lies in the... The, the I don't know if re, I've always feel I don't know if revitalization is the word is the right word but the answer lies in our tikanga and our reo, I, th- I think and and then um, those values of fanaungatanga manaki tanga um, because when we bring those to bear and really shine light on how what do they actually mean as as fano to implement those values then all of the damage that's been done. By the post treat, you know, by the treaty settlement process, where where if you look at what happened in the in most tribunal hearings, all of those values of fanaungatanga, just to take one, were completely destroyed through that process. So you had situations where hapu who are closely related, or iwi like ours here, who who are very closely re- related and travelled together. On, you know, as part of the heke and settled here, were pitted against one another in the treaty settlement process because of the Crown um, uh, policy. Right? And so our value, our tikanga, was completely undermined by that process. So how do we, um, you know, how do we examine that and then try and um, undo the damage from that and sort of go again? That That's a quite a I'm really interested in that question (laughs) (laughs) it's a big question that 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 needs actually a wānanga (laughs) it's not a don't worry I didn't I didn't expect you to give me all the answers no no, it it is it's it's wānanga around and I'm not saying that Mm -hmm. I'm not saying our of course our entities have value yes yeah but our our entities exist we all exist together and then the entities to really have Real value and relevance have to be very connected to the the whānau mm. and the hapu and the iwi in all respects, and it's 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 a you know it's a two way relationship. But if one gets if if it gets out of balance, I think that's when you see some of the dis- dysfunction that we've we see mm. um, across um, across the across the different. Um, areas, and it's still about fitting into a Pākehā system. Like really, every everything still responds back to the the Pākehā system because that's the still the normal. And, um, and unless we continue to disrupt and create promote and amplify the alternative, we'll be stuck with that normal. And what we want is for the alternative to become the norm. And so let's actually get together and start creating the alternative together. Mm. And that system. Our current, polit- you know, system of government and the constitutional framework, I would say, has no legitimacy. So, so until it's built on a on a a, a genuine treaty uh, partnership framework, then uh, you know, I really struggle to to see how it can claim to be legitimate. And in fact, I think that's why, you know, regardless of um, advances that might be made in certain areas, it will con- until those foundations are strong and are right, it will continue in the much you know much in the way that it that it has. Mm. So that that's another challenge that we have to we have to meet. 
And now I'm getting right in the juice of the corridor and we're about to come to the end. <laughs> this always happens. Um, I have been very conscious of the fact that you have a whakahua here with two of your kuia who have been listening in and joining in uh, with our corridor, And um, it's a, it makes me feel very settled to have them in this space because... I know that you don't come here alone, but it's also a beautiful way to see who you come here with um, and who follows you. And it's a very beautiful segue for me to ask who um, is or are uh, some Indigenous wahine who have inspired you on your pathway uh, to get to where you are today. Mm. Um, so, you know, in my day-to-day life, as I've said, I'm so lucky to be inspired. You know, I'm surrounded by these beautiful uh, women every day. And that, that I think I'm, it's never lost on me that that's a really, re- you know, special environment to be part of, although mm. I do believe we should, all, as Māori women, as Indigenous women, that should be our natural um, state of being. So, you know, I think about my cousins um, who I work with every day. Um, and again, like I said, the, the rangatahi, and there are some amazing younger women, um, Māori women, who are just amazing in, in the mahi that they do. Um, but two, two, you know, in particular um, stand out for me, and that's um, the example of Te Puia. So Te Puia for me, um, obviously... I don't know what she was like as a as a person, yeah. <laughs> um, but when I read about her or hear stories about her, people that knew her or talk you know talk about her, she epitomises for me, um, you know, everything that's good about being Māori mm-hmm. in terms of her strength, her humility, her power, but 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 exercised in such a um, an amazing way. And then the other woman who who means a lot to me, and she's she's died now, and her name was Nin Thomas. She was from the Hokianga, um, and she um, she really, I guess, mentored me. And and I worked with her when I was at the York, Auckland University, and we were friends for a long time before she died. Um, and she, you know, Nin was um, Nin was a really unusual unusual person mm. so she lived alone um, she liked her own company um, she had she was sort of into Star Wars and you know really <laughs> really um, quite unusual incredibly intelligent and she fiercely fought for things Māori like that through to her core she was you know she fought for and believed in you know, all things Māori. So she was really inspiring to me. And, I, you know, I was um, quite young when I worked with her and we shared, she, she, she was in the office next to me. And it's, you know, at the time I didn't appreciate her knowledge and her wisdom. Um, and so I've, that's a lesson I've, I've tried to learn now, you know, in terms of the woman that I'm around, people I'm around constantly to try and, you know, absorb all of that wisdom and... Mm. Um, knowledge that they have so I don't um, take it for granted mm. So we've had a talk about um, the legacy of the mahi and the legacy of uh, your whanau the um, importance of those that have gone before you and the innovation of things to come and the excitement of all of these new ideas and fresh ideas and, and achievements yet to happen um, which is my beautiful segue to our last part. Uh, what is your hope for the future of Indigenous women? Uh, my my biggest hope is that we're well, that our whānau and our communities are well. Um, whatever wellness means for us, because it'll be it'll look different for different whānau. Um, but also that um, we have the um, the space, the support, 
the structure to be ourselves and all our really, you know, in, in that myriad of diverse ways that we are and that we we really recognise the value of that mm. because I, you know, I believe that um, we have this enormous untapped wisdom and power and knowledge inside us as Māori women, as Indigenous women and communities. It's hard to separate, you know, the, the individual from our community, I think. Um, and we're on the cusp, I, but we're, we are on the cusp of something extraordinary. Certainly in our country, I, I believe we are and, and everyone else is going to have to keep up and catch up and, and some of them will, and that will be fun, wonderful. They can, you know, they'll be they'll be with us, and some won't. Kaitapai. That's you know, yeah. So I'm. That's that's my hope. That that you know, and and that um, each of us discovers what that make what that means for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. Um Thank you so much for your corridor today and <laughs> for answering some of my part that I know went a little bit deeper than what I think you, you were ready to answer. Um, I really appreciate the time that you've given for our kōrero and I, I, th- I have to say you were probably the most softly spoken CEO I've ever met, um, which is also a beautiful lesson that you don't have to be loud to be a leader and you don't have to, you can be softly spoken and get the job done at the same time. And I think sometimes we confuse demeanour, what our demeanour should be in, in positions of leadership. And so it's been lovely to just hear your corridor and the way that it's delivered and be reminded that leadership uh, comes in all different forms and um, all of those different forms can still be very, very successful. So I'm very excited to see where Wakatu goes in the future. Um and thank you very much for inviting us to Yoro here and hosting us here. Um, it has been a wonderful time in Te Tauihu. So tēnā koe. Tēnā koe.